0: Good evening. Low back pain remains a musculoskeletal condition with an adverse societal impact. Globally, low back pain is highly prevalent and a leading cause of disability. In the United States, low back pain remains one of the most common reasons to seek health care and, along with neck pain, is the medical condition associated with the highest overall costs. An update to the 2012 Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy Clinical Practice Guidelines for Low Back Pain was recently released in late 2021. Tonight, we will talk about why this CPG was created, how it was constructed, and what this recent CPG recommends for the treatment of low back pain. We want to thank the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy for bringing you this broadcast. Hi, I'm physical therapist Jimmy McKay, and tonight we'll be joined by authors and contributors from the Low Back Pain Clinical Practice Guideline. That CPG can be accessed right now at orthopt.org under the Clinical Practice Guidelines section, along with other resources that can help expand your orthopedic practice. Let's bring in our first set of guests. Let's bring in Steve George. And Catherine Norman, Steve, and Catherine, welcome to the broadcast.
1: Hello, Jimmy. Jimmy,
2: right, thanks Steve. for having
0: us. Let's start with you, Steve. Uh, let's start with that big question, that overarching question, and why? Why was this clinical practice guideline created in the first place?
1: Uh, well, the update was created because there was uh, one that came before it. Um, the at the time it was the section, but now the academy, um, you know, uh, decided to. Uh, put together practice guidelines for a wide uh, variety of conditions and the low back pain one, um, the original was published in 2012 and there was a plan to update them, you know, every uh, four or five years. And this one took a little bit longer for various reasons. Um, And as you mentioned in the intro, you know, low back pain remains a, a, a very common and prevalent and disabling condition. So, um, you know, this hopefully will provide uh, PTs and, and others with information on you know what the literature is telling us can be potentially some some guidance for uh, treating uh, back pain.
0: Now, many of the audience might have uh, might know a little bit about what a CPG is, but let's talk about the process that goes into creating one. Can you can you help us understand maybe just just a little bit about the process that goes into creating a, a clinical practice guideline?
1: Sure, and, and Catherine can chime in. I, I mean, it is it's a long and winding road, type of process, um, at a very big picture level. You know, you do generate some questions. Uh, a lot of times, generating the questions for the for the back paint for the guidelines aren't necessarily the most interesting part because they're they're pretty broad. Um, the next part is to get together some search terms and you know see what other people have done and and searched on. Um, then you get someone who is qualified enough to do a really robust um, literature search after the literature literature search is completed uh, really that's some of the the bulk of the, the labor in, in sorting through the articles um, you have you know you have the the the, uh, the inclusion and exclusion criteria set up beforehand and then you start culling the articles and, and we did a process that's um, should be familiar to most people where we had two people looking at the same article and there had to be agreement that the article met the inclusion criteria. Um, after that, you work on uh, synthesizing the evidence. We were not charged with doing a meta-analysis, so we, we were able to do a, a narrative uh, type of uh, synthesis, which we thought was appropriate for, for an update. Uh, One of the things that was a little bit different about this method is we did have some standing recommendations from the original guidelines. So we were really looking at how um, the literature may alter um, existing recommendations. And then the last part is, you know, putting what we used to put pen to paper. I don't think we, you know, do that anymore, although I still say it, Um, you know, putting putting the thoughts on, on, um, onto the screen and, and trying to get it into a unit, you know, that people can consume um with with you know being comprehensive enough to that to have some credibility, but also having it be consumable enough that that people see it as a you know as a document that they can actually access and use. Do you have anything to fill in there, Catherine? Yeah,
0: sorry. Give me a chance to chime in, Catherine. Anything you want to add in the the process of creating a a clinical practice guideline?
2: Um, I mean, I think really for anybody who's interested in doing it, the APTA does, I think it's annual, if not biannual just a class on what's involved. And they do have a manual that's involved with it too, where it just kind of outlines the process, like from the point of forming your question to really the end process and what the APTA can help with in terms of librarians and article access. Um, There's there's a lot of wheels in motion. And I highly recommend plugging in, like Steve said, getting a librarian in charge of the search. Um, We were handed the search from the previous, obviously this was an update. but having a librarian, I mean, I think it was like 39 pages of search terms just for low back pain. Um, so, getting a librarian involved, having somebody who's going to use the sorting software. We use Covidence, which is helpful, and just having somebody who can help kind of push it along and manage all these moving parts essentially.
0: Yeah, the reason I wanted to start with the reason I wanted to start with uh, getting some insight on just how these things are created is I think it's a massive effort that a lot of times people don't necessarily uh, know, right? It's it's kind of like the, the stuff that's below the surface of the iceberg. So wanted to start with that, uh, Steve. Let's come back to you. Um, why did you decide to focus on PT specific interventions with this uh, CPG?
1: Well, um, and and you know, this is my remembrance. Um, first of all, nothing. You know nothing was a, a decision made solely by anyone on the team and uh, this was something we discussed quite a bit uh, amongst the team and and I think for me it really boiled down to um, two elements one this would differentiate uh, these guidelines for better or for worse it would differentiate these guidelines from what has already been published um, almost everyone on these guidelines has a lot of experience um, and is well aware of you know the other guidelines that have been published and we We did think a little bit about you know what what could we do different um you know does the world need another low back pain guideline um and then i think the second part is it is specific then if people want to use this um it it does have some specificity to care delivered or 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 supervised you know by a physical therapist and you know that's not really meant i think to be territorial it's not really meant to be you know like oh you know we're number one type of stuff it's more um Specificity to practice and and you know seeing what the literature supports for for physical therapists and and in some areas I think it was eye opening um, you know t- to us where where PTs have been maybe more active in some of the literature and in some of the areas where they haven't been as active or when they have been as active you know the studies weren't weren't high quality.
0: You alluded to uh, the team, so let's talk about some of that. Uh, the the CPG was was broken down into uh, to subsections. How how did the leaders for these subsections? How were they selected?
1: Um, one other thought. Sorry, I got I got lost. Um, the third part for the PT was just out of pragmatism to to reduce the volume of the literature. Um, so the, the team was really selected. First, people um, had to be willing to volunteer. You know, this, this was um, a, a service type of project. So we had to have people that were willing to volunteer. Luckily with the Orthopedic Academy, you know, usually there is no shortage of volunteers and that's the case this time. Uh, and then really it was driven based on their expertise in a certain certain area. And, you know, I think we were lucky to work with people, like I said, that are well-versed. Um, they, they had a good idea um, of what the literature was was in their given area, but not enough, you know, that they were biased or, you know, think, oh, why do we even need to do a search? Um, and that really drove the uh, the team. When we got into the literature, we, we there was some areas that had more, um, you know, more studies. So some of the teams had other, other individuals that were, were helping beyond, you know, the, uh, the author group and, uh, the, the team leaders led, led that charge. So, um, you know, after, after the content expertise part, um, we, we tried to give some autonomy and in, in how people wanted to call their literature because we all were looking at the same, um, you know, rules and, and, and following the same principles as Catherine mentioned in, in the handbook. And, um, you know, that also let us kind of get through this very large body of literature um, in, a, in a relatively quick manner.
0: All right, Catherine, let's talk about formatting. Uh, when it was handed to you, how was this, uh, how did you go about formatting this uh, clinical practice guideline?
2: I'm laughing because Steve said it was a relatively quick process. but <laughs> <laughs> Relatively like, is a key. Quick.
0: Well, relatively. So how long was this process? Yeah. Catherine, Like mean, talk about that
2: uh steve brought me on in may of 2020 uh for a couple month long project that turned into may 2020 to now i would say safely um but we did the search I, I started meeting with the librarian probably in may of 2020 and we did the search by the end of june 2020 and then by the time we got the search done and the search is disseminated to the groups the groups made it all the way through all the process of getting to their articles and extraction and writing i mean I think we we got final drafts from the authors, a- April sounds right, April or May. So, it, I mean, it does take about a year to get through all of the literature, make it through. I mean, you, there's going to be a ton of questions that come up. Is this, should this be included or what, what bin should this go in and how should this be managed? And so, and you have to do everything else that is kind of CPG, all CPG mandated. So that's like the strengths of evidence, the grades of the evidence, the tables that go into it and all that kind of stuff that you see universally in all the cpgs for those people who read every single one that comes out um so no i i mean steve says it's relatively quick and i guess in writing terms it is you know you have a year to do it um but it's it's a busy year and so you know getting a kind of balancing act between what you know these really experts in their field everybody on this paper and then managing it with like okay this is how you do a systematic review and then making sure that it satisfies kind of these APTA guidelines, which are actually handed down from the Institute of Medicine um, from many years ago. They did a CPGs, why they matter. We can trust them. And that was about 2011 um, that they mandated that. So like every healthcare profession is supposed to do that. Um, When someone looks at this
0: talk, talk about the formatting and and how that, how, how that goes, uh, what was involved in that?
2: Oh yeah. Um, So all the CPGs kind of follow this same strength of evidence, levels of evidence, grades of evidence. Um, so what happens is, you know, the authors have to go through and they have to cull through the literature, see what can be included and excluded. And again, that was handed down to us from the previous one with some changes just because things change over time. Um, so once they get all that evidence down, then they have to look through these articles. And again, I mean, with low back pain, there's 80,000 articles that were included. Um, so they have to look through, see which ones were included. We only took the highest level just because there was so much literature and because we're trying to just give the highest level evidence-based practice. Um, so going through all that, we have to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page as far as like, well, is this an RCT? Do they have enough people? Is the follow-up period long enough? And so that extraction period really dictates these grades that you get. Um, and so, you know, managing... All the people who are writing all this coming back together with questions having these team discussions um, it is quite the process because you have to make sure that everything is kind of meshing together while still being relevant to time um, and you know the other author leads will talk about how they get these articles and kind of fit them into these boxes it's like we're given okay this is the framework and you have to make it fit so other people can understand it um, and so there's just rules that are handed down from CPGs in general, AOPT CPGs, and um, it's actually quite the process, just to make sure that it's uniform across all conditions.
0: And that's the reason I wanted to ask some of these questions at the beginning of this broadcast and this video, is uh, I wanted people to understand sort of the scope and the, the magnitude and the size and the length of time, you know, of work and attention and care that go into creating a clinical practice guideline. Uh, Catherine, Steve, thanks for kicking off the show. We'll bring you guys back in uh, just a minute. Let's bring in our uh, our next group. Uh, Mike, Cherie are going to come in along with uh, John. Welcome to the program. Hello to this trio. Thanks for joining the broadcast.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for having us, Jimmy. All right, let's start off here. Uh, Mike, we'll start with you. Manual therapy got a lot of attention, especially on this thing uh, called social media. Uh, in spe- specifically, the thrust, non-thrust manipulation. So just from where you were sitting, you were involved with this, uh, you know, wh- what would you say to that in terms of the amount of attention and the type of attention uh, that this was getting online?
4: Well, yeah, just to ask a question back. So what specifically is popping up? What's the attention about well,
0: I think whenever something comes out, especially something as robust as a, a clinical uh, practice guideline, uh, everybody's gonna have their own opinion. They're gonna, they're gonna nitpick, they're gonna cherry pick, and they're gonna tear things apart. And I think one thing that struck me while things were going back and forth on social media was there was a lack of response or the ability to respond directly from people like you guys who are part of putting it together. So that's why I wanted to start start off. With, was there anything that you wanted to, uh, you know, anything in the record you wanted to to correct or anything you wanted to point out?
4: Well, the only thing I'll point out is that as much as there is controversy about thrust versus non-thrust mobilization techniques, the literature pretty much shows there about the same. I mean, they're both effective. One's not, does not appear to be better than the other. There isn't a lot of literature that directly compares a thrust versus a non-thrust procedure, right? So, um, there's really not a lot of difference there. So I don't understand what the big debate is. They're both effective. It doesn't seem to matter which you use.
0: Perfect. Anything else, anything else that that you were hearing or responses that you were getting directly or that you were uh, you were reading in passing that you'd want to address?
4: Yeah, well, you know, it's probably no surprise that everything we looked at and Sri and John will probably speak this too with exercise. The rehabilitation literature is very messy, right? It's not clean like you're looking at um, treatment A versus drug A versus drug B or 100 milligrams of drug A versus 200 milligrams of drug B. The rehabilitation literature, there's very few trials that look at mobilization alone versus something else, same with exercise. So there's so many trials where it's manipulation plus exercise plus dry needling versus, you know, three, four other combinations. So it's hard to tease out the independent effect of any one of these interventions especially mobilization, Now, I will say this, we're involved with a huge trial here at the University of Pittsburgh right now, 1,200 patients being randomized, and one of our interventions is is mobilization. Um, It'll probably be the largest mobilization trial ever done, 1,200 patients, and I will tell you the funding agencies like NIH, they're tired of this discussion about thrust versus non-thrust. They don't seem to care, right? They really don't care, and they don't care what profession delivers the the mobilization either? So I, I I predict that we're going to see less less manipulation and mobilization trials in the future because kind of the jury's out. We know that it's effective, so let's move on to something else. I think that's kind of where the handwriting on the wall is.
0: John Cherie, anything? I saw you guys nodding over there. Anything you guys would want to want to add to that? So you really started to nod when Mike brought up uh, literature is a little little
3: messy. Well, it's, it's very messy. Um, you know, there's a, there's a boatload of literature on, you know, exercise and back pain, right. Um, but when you get into what the inclusion criteria for those are, it's really, uh, they've had pain for three months and it affects their function. And then you have, you know, exclusion criteria that are pretty common, getting us to the, uh, unspecified, you know, unspecific low back pain category. Um, and that's kind of it. So it's, it doesn't get very specific to, like, we look at subcategorizing patients. And so I think the heterogeneity of it also makes it a little difficult to, you know, interpret clinically when you have somebody in front of you. Um, You know, in addition to that, like, like Catherine was saying that we, you know, we only took the literature that was a Pedro score of six or better. Right. And so supposedly we had the, you know, the best of what was out there, but even The trials that were left were pretty small um, subject sizes, and really poorly described interventions. So it, you know, while we tried to help the reader by going through and figuring out whether, you know, the interventions being matched were, you know, motor control or core stabilization or, you know, McKenzie, it's it's difficult because, uh, you know, it's they're just not well described, and so you know, we did what we could. We tried to subcategorize for people where we could, uh, where the inclusion criteria really, um, you know, allowed us to do that. So, we, you know, you'll see in their leg pain or older adults, or we did get lucky and um, there were a subgroup of studies where the authors actually um, attempted to identify uh, movement control impairment. And, and so uh, rather than assume that it exists, and, and so we were able to, you know, to help try to help out a little bit there. Um, I think defining the exercise categories was an attempt to help people understand when, when different exercises were getting compared, what they were. Um, and so we put those operational definitions in there related to that. Um, I think the other thing that we tried to do that people are, are uh, looking to see what really do these group differences mean when they did occur. Uh, was to try to give the um the mean difference between the groups for the outcome measures and so that should allow people to sort of look at that and judge for themselves what they think are you know strong differences between the different interventions um you know we honestly we we were as disappointed that we couldn't give better answers than than the readers are at not having them yeah so john do you want to add anything?
5: I don't, I don't know if I have much to add, but I, I think you guys said, Mike talked about how uh, we're not looking at intervention A versus intervention B. We're looking at a, a a lot of interventions compared to a lot of other interventions. And so it's hard to tease out exactly what is what and what affects her or from what. And then um, the inclusion criteria or the lack of inclusion criteria really limits the ability to say that a particular exercise intervention should be performed for a particular uh, patient presentation or specific impairment or something like that. That's just you. you would be sort of taking a um, taking a leap to make that conclusion from the available literature. And then the the other thing is the reporting, right? So we really only know what authors report. And so if if there's not good reporting on things like exercise prescription or even the specific exercises that made up an intervention because terms like stabilization and motor control exercise, they sort of get used differently in different articles. And if the, the authors don't give you precisely what they did, then it can be uh, pretty challenging to then say uh, what clinicians should, should be doing or may be doing those sort of things.
0: Before we bring in the next group, is there anything you guys wanted to to, uh, to add about the process with the CPG or what you learned going through it?
4: Yeah, I just want to mention one other thing with regard to the mobilization um, literature, Um, just like what Sheree and John were saying, the problem, the big challenge in the manipulation and mobilization literature is lack of description about the procedure that was done and the dosage, right? So we have trials where they say we did spinal mobilization, that's it. There's no description. You don't even know if it's thrust or non-thrust, some studies used a single mobilization and manipulation one session one manipulation others do 20 manipulations over 12 weeks and we're supposed to com- compile those together so that's one of the biggest challenges is 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 the lack of the authors describing what they do carefully enough
3: uh, feel, yeah the other thing i would caution the readers on a little bit is you know, some of the differences, uh, when we did find significant differences between the groups um, is a function of, you know, what the comparator was, right? So if it's against nothing, heck, exercise looks great, right? Um, Larger effect sizes, but when it's against another intervention, um, those tend to be smaller. So if you look at the within group change, you know, those looked good, didn't matter which exercise approach. Um, But, you know, that that impacts that between group difference thing. And, and in some cases, I honestly think that we were matched, we were we were looking at, at prescriptions that didn't progress the exercise versus the other exercise where was progression. And I think some of the time it was the progression itself, right? The exercises, the two groups were so close that it was the fact that one got progressed and the other one didn't, that actually made the difference. Um, you know, and that's just from reading it, not, you know, having any hard evidence on that. But so I guess my take on is: progress your exercises, please.
0: Love that. Uh, Sheree, Mike, John, appreciate you stopping by to share some insight as well. We'll bring in our uh, next set of contributors, bring in uh, Trevor and Jason. Gentlemen, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having us, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy. All right, guys, you have more of the newer literature and a lot of it, combined with other sections within the CPG, such as patient education plus exercise or classification specific exercise, you know, whichever one I want you to go first. My question is, how do you sift through those findings? Where do you, where do you start and how does that work?
6: I'll, I'll go ahead and start us off. Um, I think, you know, I, I was charged with, uh, with classification and I think one of the things that we were really looking at is studies that included a uh, classification scheme in terms of how clinical decision making was was being made in the study, um, and it could have been a classification scheme compared to something else or another classification scheme. Um, so, from my perspective, that that's really what we were focusing on. If there was a classification scheme being used, um, those were studies that kind of fell into my bucket. But You know as trevor will probably allude to there were some cases where you know we had to go back and forth with other um subgroup leads to kind of decide you know is this really a classification study or is this fall really into the bucket of of manual therapy or exercise
7: yeah i I think the challenge with the education piece and that's the one that i was charged with um, is really twofold Um, the, the first was how do you define education we've already talked a little bit about the heterogeneity in some of these treatments, and um, education is certainly that. Um, there, there really is no standard way of educating, at least that we found in the literature, and so it became very difficult um, to define education succinctly. Um, there are some edu- interventions that are very clearly education, so teaching patients about their back pain or helping them to understand um, the importance of staying active, and then there are others that um have some educational components, but aren't really education and, at their core, things like like cognitive behavioral based um, treatments. And so we weren't really interested in in those. So so say, for instance, cognitive behavioral based therapies wasn't really the the um, intent of our search. and so we were were somewhat restricted in in what we considered education, which also restricted um, the the literature bank that we had access to. Um, th- the second challenge was that a lot of these educational strategies are commonly used as, control interventions for many trials. And, and Jason was was just alluding to that. So it's, uh, you know, they're often compared to some active treatment and the needs designs, it's really difficult to isolate or disentangle the effects of education uh, alone, unless there's there's a no treatment arm. And in many of these trials, um, that that's uncommon. Um, so, you know, very seldomly do we see these educational strategies as a, as a primary, um, intervention of interest compared with a different educational strategy or no treatment. And, and that's, that's challenging. It makes it difficult for us to, to figure out you know, exactly what the benefit of education is. The one exception to that, I would say, is the pain neuroscience education um, literature, which um, there's, there's been a, quite a bit of growth of that over the last 10 years or so. And we were able to make some recommendations there that were not available in the previous guidelines.
0: Excellent. Uh, next question for both of you. We'll go with Jason first, then Trevor. You're, you're both health systems researchers. What would be ideal next steps for this CPG, in your opinion, to promote best practice, maybe even across disciplines? Jason, what do you think?
6: Yeah, I think that's one thing that, that I personally am pretty excited about is is really testing these clinical practice guidelines. And, you know, now you're talking more about implementation, and, and that's a whole nother challenge in of itself. Um, we recently completed a study that will be published next month in, in JOSPT where we, we really looked at implementing neck pain guidelines for physical therapists as well as the, um, the older low back pain guidelines. And, you know, it's, it's challenging because in terms of outcomes that you are interested in implementation studies, um, they can really cover a variety of domains, um, some of them being related to clinicians themselves right? What are the clinician's perspectives? What are their behaviors related to the guidelines? But then also patient outcomes. And a lot of times those outcomes don't really all flow in the same direction um, because it is a challenge, right? To actually get in there and see what the clinicians are doing and how is it different from what they were doing before. And guidelines are, again, like Mike and Cherie talked about earlier, we're talking about guidelines and implementing them. We're not talking about one single intervention. We're really talking about a clinical decision-making process. So, in my mind, that's probably the next step with these guidelines: is is let let's see if they if they really do have an impact on on patient outcomes. Trevor, your thoughts? Yeah, would,
7: yeah, yeah. I would I would agree with that. And I think one of the additional challenges is that you know many m- medical disciplines, physicians still don't see physical therapy as um, best practice for low back pain or understand the benefits that physical therapists can provide um, in the treatment of low back pain. And I think one of the, you know, potentially the, the, the best way that these CPGs could be used to promote best practices to demonstrate um, to these other disciplines exactly what they can expect when they refer a patient to, um, to for, for physical therapy. Um, now, you know, obviously this assumes that as a profession, we can take the necessary steps to make sure that we reduce Uh, unwarranted variation and that we're actually following these. But I think, um, you know, along with some of the work that Jason's doing at Brooks and um, that that we're trying to do here at at Duke, I I think it could um, help to improve um, the the standing or at least the understanding of what physical therapists can provide um, for patients with low back pain and and, and try to get us all on the same page. Uh, That's ideally where we need to be.
0: Just want to remind people that the uh, the link to this CPG is available in the comments, and as well as uh, at orthopt.org. Jason and Trevor, thanks so much for your insight and your help in putting this uh, resource together. Let's bring Steve George back in to help us wrap things up and maybe look at some possible future uh, directions. Steve, quickly walk us through how do you compile this once all the sections were complete? How do you how do you how do you begin to wrap your head around making this one final product?
1: Uh, yeah, good, good question. I mean, obviously, um, there's some iteration. Um, you rely on someone with excellent organizational skills, like Catherine Norman. Um, you know, you share it with others who um, were uh, the other team at that. At the, when you're talking about the compilation, that I think you're talking about, you know, um, uh, Julie, Catherine, and I really tried to. Um, take the great work that the teams had done, which, by the way, thank you all. Um, uh, I try to thank uh, the, these g- folks anytime I get a chance because they did a fantastic job, and it was not um, easy work. Um, but when we took their their the the toils of their labor, you know, we really tried to um, provide a little bit of a uniform voice to it, um, and you know, just kind of going through it and going through it. Um, we did work with um, some of our colleagues at the Duke Clinical Research Institute to put together an infographic because we know, you know, there are there are some folks who are visual I'm one of them. So we we thought maybe that would be helpful. And then, of course, there's all the text and then there's a summary. So it's really almost like a multimodal approach. You find, you know, hopefully they're all saying the same thing, which I think we eventually got to that point with a lot of help, including, you know, the reviewers and the copy editors and, and, and things like that. And, um, you know... That that was really the approach I take—an iterative approach. Um, I'm I'm not good enough to do anything right the first time, but by about the tenth or fifteenth time, I, I I get I get close enough, especially with all these people helping. Um, and I would like to mention, you know, that this did go through peer it, it's a peer review. It's it's an interesting kind of model of peer review because by the time you're sharing it for peer review, it's 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 pretty well down the tracks. Um, so if someone had a problem with their search, you know, we, we can't redo the search. Um, but the reviewers did provide us input and um, the reviewers did also, there were some of the recommendations that they brought to our attention that we did change. Um, so, you know, we, we were responsive to the peer reviews. And I mentioned that because, you know, the aforementioned storm about manual therapy, interestingly, that, that, the that wasn't triggered by the reviewers. And I'm not saying that for any other reason to then, you know, we did respond to review concerns. We did look closely. The recommendations were not reviewed, you know, just by Julie and I, (laughs) everyone had input on them and the teams made recommendations. We looked at them and then the peer reviewers looked at them and, and and there were some, and I think they called our attention to them and, and we adjusted them appropriately. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's not easy, but you you do eventually get there, and and you can kind of step back and say, well, I I think, I think this is what this update's gonna look like.
0: <laughs> yeah. I had a chance to weigh on weigh in on something similar. I mean, I gave gave chance uh, Mike a chance to really um, to speak directly to the uh, the aftermath on social media, which pretty much everything now has an aftermath on social media. If you don't have an aftermath, it is the thing that you did really important? Right. Right. So I wanted to make sure you had a chance to to, to weigh in, maybe a little more. I argued this of similar topic actually my 2019 Oxford debate and the charge was, is social media hazardous to the profession of physical therapy? And my argument was social media is neither good nor bad, but it is a tool and could be hazardous. Is there anything that while you were reading your, along that you specifically said, Oh, you know what? That's a good point. Uh, I kind of agree with that. Maybe this person has, has, has something that, uh, that, that they added.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there was one, one voice in particular, um, that, uh, you know, uh, Geronimo uh, was, was someone who um, we had um, a past connection, some of the people on the team, and and I think uh, he brought up some really good points about um, the process that we went through. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is obviously some of the things on social media popped up quickly enough that it was clear, you know, people didn't read our process. And I'm certainly not expecting everyone to read, you know, the entire process, but I, I feel like once people understood, you know, the process that we did and that it does differ from other guidelines and we're looking at a different body of literature, you know, then then once you are okay with that, like our process is different, our studies are different. So our recommendations were different too, like, that's, that's, you know, that's EBP 101, right? If you have a, two different systematic reviews, and you go back and they have different studies, then they're probably going to have different recommendations. So, you know, I think, and and of course, there were some people that held on till the very end. And, and those, I think, are the folks that you, you think, well, maybe those are the hazardous folks. But I, I agree with you. It's a tool. I think overall, you know, there were some harsh early reactions, the people who were maybe, um, a little bit modifiable. I'd like to think maybe they still don't like it, but they understand it. And, and it right. wasn't such a, you know, eyesore. And then there's always an extreme person, you know, or people who aren't going to like whatever was published in, you know, um, and there was some accusations. I'm not a huge social media and I had a lot of enabling by, uh, folks, you know, there was, there was some accusations of, tweets being asked to be deleted and you know we we said it before we'll say it again no no one on the author team asked anyone to delete any tweets we stand behind our work 100 percent. we gave each other a hard time over things you know we we um we feel pretty confident that this is a reflection of the body of the literature that we extracted and, and summarized um you know, is it a meta-analysis? No. You know, did we, there, there are some different ways to do this. And, you know, maybe the academy wants to do that. Maybe that's a good idea for the academy to think of in future to provide the resources that are needed to do a meta-analysis in an area like low back pain where, you know, you probably have enough studies. But you heard it from Mike. You heard it from Cherie. You heard it um, from John. The heterogeneity is real. You know, I, I think I, I think the the meta-analysis sounds really good. And I think in a more narrow area. Excuse me. You might be able to, but when you look at how broad these practice guidelines are intended to be, um, it's a challenge.
0: And that was the we had this discussion in late twenty twenty one in terms of putting this broadcast together with the authors and contributors tonight was just an opportunity to pull back the curtain a little bit let people know and maybe kind of remind them like this is different. Make sure you understand what was going into this. CPG before you're 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 digging too deep into what came out of it.
1: Yeah, I think so. And and um, you know, I I have no problem with people who disagree with the recommendations. Um, we're happy to you know, like you said, provide more information. And I think we've done a pretty good job, you know, yeah. talking to different folks through different media. But you know, we we stand behind uh, the work, and and the team I think did an excellent an excellent job.
0: All right. Uh, You mentioned possibility of maybe a meta-analysis, but uh, final question for tonight looks to the future. What's next, in your eyes, for this particular CPG?
1: Well, you know, um, Jason already mentioned it. It it would be interesting to see. Um, One of the things that was encouraging about the last CPG, which was broader, we just didn't focus on intervention, is, you know, people used it. And that was interesting to me, because I'm used to reading about, you know, things in the literature where people don't use <laughs> guidelines. So people use the guideline, and, and they used it in different ways, maybe, than, than we thought. And I think that's what I look forward to, is like, what do people who are, who are seeing patients every day or who are involved in healthcare systems that want to provide, you know, care models what really creative cool things are they gonna do with this to help people get better non-pharmacologic care? I mean, that's what it boils down to is, you know, who are the people who are going to use this to, um, you know, lead to clinical actions or clinical pathways that increase exposure to non-pharmacologic care? Um, And if that's delivered by PTs, great. You know, Mike's already mentioned, if it's delivered by other providers, great. I think, you know, that's really what we're interested in 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 a very big picture sense is can this who how are people are going to use it and um how are they going to use it in ways that we didn't anticipate you know i hope it doesn't sit somewhere and it becomes some multiple choice question for dpt students right it's 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 meant for more than that no offense to multiple choice questions (laughs) for dpt students but it's meant for a little bit more than that
0: excellent Let's bring back all the other uh, contributors from tonight's broadcast as we bring them back onto the screen here. Uh, some chatter going on in the uh, the chat behind the scenes. I want to give you all an opportunity, first and foremost, to uh, to thank you in front of everybody for, for putting your time and effort and energy and insight into this resource. Um, we'll give you a, a, an opportunity to do what I, I, on my podcast, call Parting Shot. Uh, last chance for a, a thought, a mic drop moment, a soapbox statement, something you want to leave with the audience as we wrap up. Mike, I'm going to let you go first because I think you got a pretty good one. The phrase from 2021 comes back. Mike, you're on mute.
2: Yeah.
4: Sorry about that. I'm not a social media guy. I'll say that right up front. But I think it's, what's really important point to make is that guidelines are, like you said, Jimmy, guide lines, right? They're to guide practice. They're recommendations. These aren't mandates. And I think a lot of the, um, the emotion that I, that I hear about on social media comes from people thinking that we're telling you what to do in this guideline. We're not telling you what to do. These are recommendations based upon us looking at hundreds or thousands of pieces of literature. And just take it, just take it that way that they're not mandates.
0: Catherine, I, I feel like you have a good parting shot, something that uh, along the lines of being a good good consumer, big, being, making sure you're being a good consumer.
2: Oh, well, so I went to PT school at University of Delaware, and we were always told Be good consumers of the literature. So, like, you can publish anything. I mean, you know, whether that's in a peer reviewed journal or a predatory journal or anything. um, But at the end of the day, it's you. And, you know, in PT school, I'm pretty sure all of my PT school friends who went to a variety of places learned that it always depends. Like, you have to learn kind of what works well for you, what works well for the resources you have, what works well for the patient, their resources, what works well for your health system, the payer, you know, there's a lot of people. And so at the end of the day, it's, can you be a good consumer of the literature? And, you know, now it's it's muddled with uh, all the lovely things that happen on social media because you can kind of get derailed by other people's opinions. So for me, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you gotta be a good consumer of the literature. And I think, you know, understanding Kind of the multifaceted view of research is really important.
0: All right, let's go to uh, let's go to Jason and then Steve for uh, for our parting shots.
6: Yeah, I can't remember where I first heard this, but I I know Tara Joe Manow from University of Delaware used this in in one of her talks, and you know I think it really comes back to what Trevor mentioned before with the unwarranted um, <clears throat> variability in, in in care and clinical practice for physical therapy and. Clinical practice guidelines, like Mike said, are just that, right? They're, they're not recipes to do things one single way. But I like the analogy of, you know, there is a lot of variability in our profession. And and clinical practice guidelines take it from a 16-lane highway to maybe a three or four-lane highway. So it's not a single-lane highway, but it's 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 not your typical highway that you see in Los Angeles. So I, I think that's another important point. And um, I use that analogy all the time.
0: All right, Steve, let's have you wrap it up for us with uh, your parting shot.
1: Sure. And and I'm going to do it without invoking the University of Delaware, so take that, you blue hens out there. Um, I think uh, you know, if you're looking, if if you're a researcher, if you're a clinician looking to do a innovative care pathway, don't ignore the knowledge gaps part of this. I mean, there's basically how to information on on what <laughs> needs to be done to improve the quality of the literature, not the quantity, the quality and you know, you heard from um, some of the specific areas of uh, uh, what was laugh- lacking, you know, the the specificity of the inclusion-exclusion criteria, the inability to subgroup, the poor, um, you know, description of interventions. And then I will add, you know, a lot of studies with very short follow-up time. Um, so if you are looking at, at, like, how do I make a splash? And I am like you know, research career, clinical career, path, you know, wh- wherever you want to Express yourself. Um, I think there there is a lot uh, to be seen in those knowledge gaps because that's not telling us what's there. You know, that's outside of the recommendations. That's what's telling us. You know, what what would what we would have liked to have seen, or or what we think may need to be seen. And you know, we're not supposed to recommend what future research should be done, but it doesn't even take reading between the lines. You know, to look at those knowledge gaps. So and you know. I think we talked about those and that we thought that was a really important part of the, the guidelines. And, and um, we tried to ch- channel Sheree, I think a little bit with her, you know, her, um, What can we call it disgust, Dr. Silfies with, uh, with Sonia Johnson? Yeah, you know, I some of the,
3: okay, yeah, you know,
1: <laughs> okay, I, disgust
5: I do not want to mild. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, with with the quality of some of the studies and guess what, these are studies done by PTs. So we can't blame, you can't say, oh, look, those, you know, you know that this provider type is doing these exercise studies. They don't even have training in there. We we have training, and you know they they were not they were not um, super impressive studies. So that's I know that's longer than a parting shot, but um,
0: might be two shots.
6: Never
1: gonna see yeah, that. That's right. All right.
0: Again, the uh, low low back pain clinical practice guideline can be accessed now at orthopt.org under clinical practice guidelines, along with other resources that can help expand your orthopedic practice. On behalf of the authors and contributors, as well as the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy, thanks for listening. Thank you.